Their job now is to sanctify the social order, to sanctify the world. That's where the power of the laity lies. You can know it all you want, but until you got to pick up that cross that you can't carry, and he picks it up for you and carries you and the cross, then you know. Our nation is too full of those that are crying down. Down with the churches. Down with government. Can you build anything down? You cannot. And let's begin now to use the word up. Up from all of this filth. Up from this violence. Up from this indifference of courts. Up, up, up to God. Be courageous and keep the joy of loving. Welcome to another episode of Cajun Kingdom of Priests. This is Reed. This is Jude. And we are here with Miles Creek. Hey, thank you all so much for having me. Yeah, welcome to the studio, man. This is exciting to um, to get to talk to you about a bunch of different things. Um, I've got, <laughs> sorry for my voice, it's uh, cracking quite a lot. I'm just getting over a cold, so y'all might have to deal with it. But yeah, we're excited to just uh, kind of dive into... Uh, some of the things that's been going on in your life and how you even got there. Because I've, you know, I met you playing uh, basketball maybe a couple times before mm-hmm. that, but uh, we've gotten to know each other as we're both doing some youth ministry, uh, quite a lot of youth ministry. But I don't have a whole lot of background on you, sure. Um, and like um, where you've, you know, where you've come from, you know. So I would love to just kind of hear a little bit about, you know, maybe your your conversion, your formation. I, I believe you went sure. to seminary at some point, right? Did, yeah. Just kind of going through a little bit of that. I think it would be good for the listeners to understand a little bit. Yeah, so uh, I was born in Lafayette, and I went to Lafayette High. I went to public school my whole life. Um, ended up going to UL and got really involved with Our Lady of Wisdom. And so my conversion kind of uh, to go really quickly through it, like kind of happened through youth group. And so we were talking about how we do youth ministry. Um, and so I was involved at St. Mary's Life Teen. And one of the core members actually got me a study Bible, the Ignatius Study Bible. If you know me, you probably hear me recommend it to you at least three or four times now. Um, but so through this, I always had a lot of questions about the faith. I'm very much kind of like naturally a skeptic. And so I kind of had to like prove to myself that this is true. You know, and so um, I had a lot of questions about the faith, and this Bible, the study Bible, helped me to really kind of open that up, um, and just to kind of see the truths of the gospel. And so through that, I got really, really into learning the scriptures, um, got involved at Our Lady of Wisdom, and took a couple classes through the Aquinas Institute. And uh, while through, you were in college, yeah, while I was in college, okay. and so they had it. It was. They had it taught at UL. It was at Wisdom. And so I took a couple classes. One was Fundamentals of Catholicism. One was New Testament. And just like really, really grew to love Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so I was actually talking to the campus minister at the time, who was Paul George. And, you know, keep in mind, I'm from public school. Um, so he was like, you really seem to have a knack for Scripture. Have you ever thought about studying theology? At the time, I was like, people do that? Like, yeah. I'd never, I've never heard of that before. I thought that was what priests do, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and so from there... I was, I was kind of actually at the time like going through kind of like a crisis. I'd started mechanical engineering, wasn't for me, and so I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And so I initially kind of brushed it off, but eventually I was kind of like, you know, that actually sounds like something I would really enjoy doing. And so I eventually ended up going to grad school to study biblical theology all the way out in San Diego. And so did that for a year, um, graduated with my master's, and then came back and taught at Turling's. And so I taught theology at Terlings for a year, and while I was there, ended up feeling like maybe God was calling me to do this in a different way. And so I ended up going to seminary. I was in seminary for almost four years, and then discerned out, and to make things shorter, I eventually ended up now back at Terlings. And so I am now currently teaching at Terlings again, and as well as doing youth ministry at St. Mary's. And so that's a quick view of, uh, you know, I guess my testimony. But, you know, God is... uh, in a way, used the intellectual traditions of the church to really kind of win me over and, you know, bring me to the place that I am now. Yeah, I was talking to someone recently who, um, they said something that really resonated with me as a youth minister is that um, we are, you know, using our personal testimony to convict and then we're using the truth of the Catholic Church to show that this personal testimony is in line with the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And that's like a perfect mix of 
catechism, you know, that, that mix of evangelization and learning the faith. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I guess like one of the things that I have to recognize as a youth minister or as a teacher is that people are just so different. You know, and so, like, I think a lot of times we focus so much on, like, method of, like, how do we evangelize better? But, like, everybody's so individual and so unique. And so, like, people resonate with different things. And so, like, in a way, I think of, like, St. Paul saying, like, I've become all things to all people so that by all means some might be saved. (laughs) And so it's, like, how do I reach out to one person who is vastly different than this other person, you know? And so sometimes that could be more through an intellectual conversation. I've had some kids who kind of like were like me and naturally very skeptic. And so I go very much from the philosophical perspective. I had the privilege of while I was in seminary because I already came in with a degree in theology, um, doing graduate work in philosophy. And so like, I very much come from the philosophical side. If any of my students were to hear this, they'd probably be rolling their eyes right now because of how much I talk about Aristotle or Aquinas all the time. But so, you know, for that person, I might focus a lot more on philosophy. But then you might have the other person who's very much been more, you know, raised Catholic from a young age, but maybe is just kind of like struggling with certain things. And so you might have to treat them a little, like respond to them a little differently. And so like, how do you kind of, you know, steer the conversation depends on a lot of different people, a lot of different factors. And so your testimony might be more effective in one regard for one person, whereas an intellectual conversation might be more effective in one, you know, for one person. So you always have to kind of like use prudence to kind of guide how you would do that. And so that's kind of, I think, one of the struggles when it comes to ministry, you know? Totally. Yeah. 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 And, and, and coming from, like, youth group, you said that's where, where your, like, onsets of, like, growing in the faith um, started. Like, what do you feel like it was for you that really attracted you to, like, deepen your faith going into college? I think that's a mm-hmm. real fear, like, a lot of parents might have, that their, their son or daughter might not, like, make the leap, per se. Sure. Or that, that even young adults feel like college might be my time to, like, finally, like, explore things outside of, like, what my family is, like, commanded of me. Um, I guess that also begs the question of, like, what family life looked like in regard to the faith. Yeah. Okay. um, So you kind of see all the different facets that are involved, even in, like, the individual person. I was just talking about different peoples. But you see a lot of that in my own life that, like, my family was always very loving, but not necessarily growing up the most religious. And so since I've started getting into my faith, they've started getting more into their faith, especially my mom. It's been beautiful to see her kind of conversion um, but I grew up, like I said, youth ministry was very important to me um, and the fact that I had a lot of friends who were in it. And even when I was kind of going through my difficult times uh, with the faith of all these questions that I had, um, I kind of kept going. Honestly, you know, I was still like 16, 17 years old. And so like you go where a lot of your friends go. And so I kind of kept going because of that. But interiorly, when it would come to prayer, when it would come to like trying to reconcile this, I had a lot of questions. Um, and so I always was excited to go to Wisdom. I always was excited to go to youth group just because, that's, like I said, that's where my friends were. Um, but through them kind of getting me more involved with stuff and kind of steering me in the right direction, um, you know, I was able to slowly but surely you know, continue to grow in my faith. So. Mm. Yeah. And what, what made you want to come back to Lafayette after moving out and going to San Diego? And oh, I love Lafayette that. so much. <laughs> like, the people here are just so great. I'm very much like a people over a places person. Mm. And so, like, San Diego is beautiful. You know, like, it's like kind of the perfect mix of you have perfect weather, you have the mountains, you have the ocean, you have, like, everything from a geographical perspective that you could ever want. But um, just there's something different about Lafayette. I I knew from the beginning, I was like, unless I get just like the dream job offer that you could never pass up, there's no way I'm not going back to Lafayette. Mm -hmm. And pretty much the day I graduated, like once graduation was over, I was already heading back. Like it wasn't, there's no question about it, I was coming back. And so it actually did work out that I ended up getting a job at Turlings right after and literally graduated. And then I think seven or eight days later started teaching. Because wow. we don't go by the semester system, in Cal- or at least at the school that we were at, we went on the quarter system. And so I graduated at the beginning of September, and they already were going through school for like a month. And so fortunately, Turlings was willing to like get a sub, you know, for me for that first month. But if they hadn't, I wouldn't have been able to get the job. Wow. But with that, I finished, gra- I graduated. Keep in mind, we're doing like, you know, reading a thousand pages of stuff a week pretty much on average. And so I didn't really have any time to prepare for teaching. (laughs) First time teacher, didn't have a background in education, just kind of had to make my way there and start like a week or two later. 
And so that was an interesting uh, first year of teaching, yeah. you know, trying to go from a very heavily academic environment to then teaching 14-year-olds about right. the Bible, you know. So, uh, but it was good. I enjoyed it a lot. And obviously, I'm still back there. I mean, so it's very much been a blessing. But it was, uh, you know, I, there's just something about Lafayette that I truly love and something about Terlings that I truly love. And so it's been such a blessing to be there the first time, but then also that God is able to bring me back. So. Yeah. The fact that we have multiple, like, really solid Catholic schools in Lafayette, like, that's mm-hmm. just not the case in other cities. Oh, like, yeah, absolutely. Like, the amount of awesome Catholic uh, education that we have is is absolutely amazing. And then you have places like Our Lady of Wisdom and so many parishes that are, like, super active, and you go there, and there's a vibrancy there. It's just, it's beautiful. And, and any, t- any city that I've visited... Um, you know, I've I've had the same thoughts. Like, this is a really cool city, but like, my heart yearns for a, a strong Catholic community, and I ha- I haven't found anything quite like Lafayette. Oh, no doubt. And I mean, that's kind of what I was talking about. Like, the reason why I wanted to come back to Lafayette, you know, ultimately is the Catholic community here, um, and I think that permeates into a lot of other ways as well that maybe we don't necessarily identify immediately but it's because of the catholic environment here that i think lafayette is such a special place and so like i said there's no place i'd ever rather be in the world might go visit you know for a little while but ultimately coming back here something drastically will have to change different in my life for me to move somewhere else yeah so what is the the balance that you have found with teaching catechesis within a school i'm guessing you teach uh a little bit of theology and philosophy throughout your classes sure and like um do, and doing youth ministry you know is there like this uh big difference between the two as far as like how much evangelization you have going on versus how much catechesis you have going on yeah i mean there is certainly a difference um and the fact that i when i was studying theology really there's only kind of there's very few things that you could do with that other than ministry and teaching. And so I kind of was trying to decide, like, what do I want to ultimately do? Um, And I think teaching does provide a very interesting thing in the fact that I see them every day. You know, I have them for roughly an hour or so every day. And so that allows a lot more time for evangelization, allows a lot more time for catechesis. And because they've been formed to some extent, hopefully, in theory, um, you know, are able to go a little deeper. And so I'm able to bring a little bit more philosophy into it. Um, and the struggle with youth ministry is that only have them like once a week or, you know, twice a week. And so it's like, how do I best reach out to them in that environment? You know, um, and I'm sure you could probably relate to that to some extent. Um, but yeah, ultimately I think probably in youth ministry, I'm going to focus a little bit more on evangelization. Yeah. Um, the relationship aspect, the relational aspect. Um, whereas in the classroom, and, and there's almost like, I feel like, you know, there's two versions of me at school. Because when I'm in the classroom, obviously I do want to have a very, you know, focus on the relational aspect, focus on evangelization. But ultimately my main job as a teacher is to teach them the faith. And so I have to recognize that. But we do have campus ministry as well. And so I'm, I'm very involved with that. And so um, we've the way that we do campus ministry at Turlings has kind of changed a little bit. This year we're trying something new. And so we've divided campus ministry into four different crews. And so we have the Calcutta crew, which is focused on service. And so the, the goal of the Calcutta crew is to focus on how do we form a culture here at Turlings that desires to serve people. And so that's one of them. Then you have the Aquinas crew. And so the Aquinas crew is focused on forming a culture of truth, that we seek the truths of the faith. Um, then the other one is the Frasati crew. And so they're focused on forming a culture of community that kind of brings everybody together, that focuses on the building up of the school. And then the Luzio crew, which is the one that I'm in charge in, which is forming a culture of prayer on campus. And so that has been a great vehicle for me to just kind of focus more on the classroom of just like, I'm here to teach you. And so I teach Old Testament for freshmen and then sacraments and morality for juniors. And so it allows me to kind of focus a lot on teaching while still being able to focus a lot on evangelization as well. Yeah, awesome. Wow. And, you know, just from knowing you, like, you seem to bring up Ignatian techniques of prayer (laughs) pretty often. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about your experience with Ignatius of Loyola and and some of the techniques that you've used and and even the stuff that you suggest to your your high schoolers that you minister to? 
Sure. And so my experience with Ignatius is actually fairly recent. Um, I Fortunately, it's actually kind of a, almost a mistake that this happened, but whenever I was in just about to start grad school, I was you know trying to prepare. You have a long summer, especially since we were on the quarter system. And I was looking up some of the books that we would have to read based off of the previous year's curriculum. And so I was taking a class on spiritual theology. And so at this point, my senior year of college was when by far I think I was most interested in the spiritual traditions of the church. I read a book called Fulfillment of All Desire. Um, For any of you who haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend it. And so he kind of just goes through a lot of the different doctors of the church. Like Essentially, it's like an introduction to the spiritual traditions of the church, Um, like the three ways of the interior or three stages of the interior life. So the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive way. But he does it through seven different doctors of the church. And so I read that book and just fell in love with the reading the lives of the saints, which more so than the lives of the saints, but the teachings of the saints. And so through that, I became more interested in that. And one of the books was on the discernment of spirits of Ignatius. And so I read that book, even though, like I said, it was kind of an accident because it ended up not being in our curriculum because <laughs> um, it was on the previous years. But so fortunately, that was one of the books that I read because if I hadn't you know, read that on accident, I might have never read it. Um, and so I think that was, you know, God, you know, in part of God's providence and making me read that. But Ignatius's discernment of spirit specifically. So Ignatius is famous for the spiritual exercises. And so he, to just give a very quick background on his life, he ended up, you know, he started off as seeking worldly fame. He wanted to be a great soldier. Um, you know, that was everything his life revolved around. And so with that comes a lot of life of sinfulness sometimes. And so he kind of lived that out. And Ignatius eventually had a major conversion because he was injured in battle really badly. And through, eventually he's bedridden. So he broke, he shattered his leg, broke the other one, and couldn't walk for a long time. And whether or not it's on purpose or not, whether or not it was actually she was telling the truth or maybe just trying to get him to convert, we don't really know. But his sister-in-law, whose house he was staying at, ended up, giving him, so he wanted to read these romance novels, you know, this, the knight in shining armor who comes in and saves, um, you know, the damsel in distress. But all that she provided for him was a book on the lives of the saints and a book on the life of Christ. And the way that those books were actually kind of written at the time, kind of in, in a way embodied the virtues of the great knights. And so they, especially the lives of the saints, really influenced him because the, the guy who wrote it, I'm struggling to remember his name off the top of my head, um, but he, he painted especially St. Dominic and St. Francis, these great you know, uh, founders of these religious orders, the Dominicans and the Franciscans, as kind of embodying the virtues of a knight, as being knights for Jesus, for the king, you know, the king wow. of the universe. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, like, Ignatius starts to wonder, like, can I, like, what if I were to be like St. Dominic? Mm-hmm. What if I were to be like St. Francis? And so here's where you kind of see the discernment of spirits come into play, is that Ignatius really enjoyed reading the romance novels of his time or just thinking about being a knight. That's all he wanted his entire life. Um, but all of a sudden now he's reading these new books, you know, that have focus on the lives of the saints, and he's starting to feel joy with that as well. But as he kind of sets both of those aside, he realizes a change, in that when he reads or when he thinks about and reflects on living the life of an earthly knight, they bring him joy in the moment, but as, that, as he puts it down and stops thinking about it, it leaves him dry and discontent. But as he thinks about the life of a saint, he still experiences that same joy, but as he puts the book down and as he kind of moves on with his day, he still experiences joy you know, as it, as it persists. Mm-hmm. And so he starts, it says that he kind of like didn't really make notice of it for a while, but then it says that one day his eyes were opened and he could see more clearly. And so as his eyes are opened, he starts to recognize that God is calling to the, him to the things that bring him peace. God is calling him to the things that bring him joy. And so from that moment on, he has this huge conversion. And once he's, his legs are healed, he pretty much travels halfway across Spain and eventually makes his way to Manresa. And so anybody who's made, you know, uh, maybe heard of Manresa, I know it's a famous kind of retreat in New Orleans. Um, but he makes his way to Manresa, and there he spends an entire year focusing on prayer and serving the poor. And that's kind of where he developed his spiritual exercises, which is generally speaking done over 30 days. Um, You can do it in different ways. You could do it over an eight-day retreat, or you could do what's called the 19th annotation retreat, which is more for lay people who can't dedicate 30 days. I'm actually 
in the process of trying to find a spiritual director for that. So if anybody's listening who is a spiritual director for a 19th annotation retreat, let me know. Quick, um, quick plug. <laughs> that's a quick plug right there. Shameless plug. Um, but, you know, these spiritual exercises are meant to, in a way, you know, obviously help you to detach from different things in the world and to more fully give your life over to Christ. And so the the part that I've been researching more on a lot lately is his rules on the discernment of spirits. And so he gives these 14 rules for how to see if God is moving in your life or how to see if the enemy is moving in your life. And I think it's really important and really practical for everybody, but I think it's really important because a lot of times we don't even realize that this is actually occurring. Like one of the, you know, the famous saying, which is that the devil's greatest work or greatest success is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. Mm. Um, but I think we also kind of work as if like God doesn't actually move in our lives most of the time. You know, we, yeah. we think about it at big moments. You know, you have this huge conversion, something really good happens in your life or something really bad happens in your life and God works in a way. And we think about it in that times, but Ignatius is trying to bring um, spiritual awareness to every moment in your life. And so that's, he gives kind of a... So he has these 14 rules, but he gives an introduction to it. And so essentially the introduction can kind of be boiled down into three main parts, which is helping you to become spiritually aware, helping you to understand the different movements in your soul. And then once you understand it, once you're aware of it, to take action, to either accept what God is doing in your life or to reject what Satan is doing in your life. And so all those 14 rules kind of help you to do those three things. And so I think that it's something, like I said, that's very practical. Um, and he has some other things that I think are also very practical that are helpful, um, like especially the examine prayer. Um, so this is a little different than examination of conscience, but for all my students know that I'm pushing this a lot because it, it is the prayer, I think, of spiritual awareness that helps you to become aware. And if you do this on a consistent basis, and Ignatius thought that this was one of the most important things, he actually calls it the key spiritual exercise. And so the examine essentially does and how it's different than examination of conscience. Technically, an atheist can do an examination of conscience. You can examine whether or not you've... I mean, you don't have to use the word sin for it, but I mean, you could examine whether or not you have certain virtues or vices. But the examine is a little different in the fact that it essentially is, it has the same elements in an examination of conscience, but it makes it more of a prayer. And so uh, Ignatius starts the examine by putting yourself in the presence of God, recognizing that God is present in your life. And then from there, you move to recognizing the blessings of the day. Like, how has God blessed you today? Um, then you invite God into the process saying, you know, make this examine a work of grace that's greater than my own earthly capacities. And then you kind of review your day. You know, you see where have I responded to God's presence in my life or God's grace? Where have I maybe rejected that? Maybe I've, where have I maybe allowed the enemy to have power over me? Um, and then from there you move to asking for forgiveness and then you plan for the next day. And so those are kind of just very quickly the five steps of the examine. But I've become very convicted that if we were to be people who prayed the examine more, um, it would increase our spiritual awareness a lot and help us to recognize that God is present in our lives more than in just like kind of the simple moments, you know, or the, uh, I mean, in the simple moments, more than just the really big, big moments, you know? Yeah, awareness is huge because it's like <clears throat> we will never know how much of an effect we're having on the world, positive or negative, if we're not evaluating ourselves. And Jesus constantly refers to like how well we understand economy and business, but we don't understand the spiritual economy. And one of the examples that I'm thinking of is like as a business owner, they always set up their mission statement, their vision mm -hmm. statements. And they, you know, if they're really good at sticking with it, they constantly refer back to their mission statement. They ask them and their employees, okay, are we sticking to our mission statement? Are we fulfilling the vision that we had for this business? It's the same thing in our lives, in our spiritual lives, and the examine is the perfect thing for that, is laying mm -hmm. out our values, our mission. Mm -hmm. And then you realize that like more often than you think, you might not be sticking to that vision sure. that you had for your life. Yeah. Yeah, and, and thinking like we often have this like 30,000 foot view of like, okay, what's our goal? Heaven. Okay. Uh, like, how am I going to get to heaven? Virtue. Then it's like, okay, well, how do you solidify that in your life? Like, within the own context of your life. Like, at my workplace, how am I going to strive for virtue? It's like, mm -hmm. when you get down to the nitty-gritty, like, family life, you know? It's like, how am I going to strive for virtue in that? And not making it just, like, so far out. Of, and, like, trying to really get deep into, like, where are the aspects of my life and that maybe... It, I've been struggling to practice virtue in, 
you know, mm-hmm. and and not not seeking out stuff like the Examine Pro or even the Fourteen Ways, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so Ignatius has a lot that I think could really kind of provide to help with that, and so that's one of the things that I love about Ignatius so much is it's very practical, and so something that all people can relate to, and so he has a lot to say about consolation and desolation, which anybody who has tried to live out the spiritual life, I could assume, has probably gone through desolation at least some point. And it maybe kind of makes you think that God has abandoned you. And so Ignatius has a lot of kind of practical rules to kind of help with that. So that you could respond to desolation and kind of make it through that time of desolation. And then from there, hope that a time of consolation will soon occur, which obviously will eventually. God will provide you with that. And welcome back. We're here uh, in the studio talking to Miles Creek. And before we left for the break, we were talking about Ignatius of Loyola's um, ways of discernment, discernment of spirits. Um, And we were talking about consolation and desolation. And I kind of just wanted to get more into that because I think that's a like obviously a real roadblock. You know, Mm -hmm. when people are in a state of desolation or if uh, if they just feel like prayer isn't fruitful, then it's like, why am I doing this? Sure. You know, or like God's not listening to me. Um, and the thing I always think when I'm going through a moment of desolation or when, when I don't feel drawn to prayer because it's not very fruitful, um, at, at least from what I can see or feel, you know, I think back to Mother Teresa, you know, who just like suffered that for 10 years of her amazing work, mm-hmm. you know, and just like, okay, I'm pretty sure I can muster up some courage to like <laughs> keep going, you yeah. know. So I just kind of, if, if you could speak into that a little bit more sure. of just like, why God allows that to happen, you know, or, or just like how to how to continue persevering through a moment of desolation or, yeah, just whatever you can say. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's, you bring up an important point, which is that like someone like Mother Teresa, like this is by no means, you know, your average Miles Creek or anybody else. Like this is one of the biggest saints that we've had in modern times. She struggled with great moments of desolation that were like continual for years. And so every... Every person who's living out a life of prayer, like attempting to live out a life of prayer, is going to go through a moment of desolations. And so that is consistent in all the spiritual traditions. John of the Cross is like main teaching that he gives us is the dark night of the soul. Um, and so like kind of like focusing on the same thing, just in a different way. And so Ignatius will mention consolation and desolation, which he says are the normal mo- movements in a person's spiritual life. And so obviously consolation being those great moments of joy where you feel very consoled. You are growing in virtue. You're growing in faith, hope, and love is what he says. And so you have these great moments of consolation. And so most of his rules will talk about what to do in desolation, because I think that nobody really needs help when you're in consolation. You know, nobody's like, man, I'm really enjoying prayer. What do I do now? You know, you just pray. Um, But he does give some rules, actually, for how to prepare for desolation when in a state of desolation. But so what desolation is, and that's what he focuses most of his time on, is that desolation is essentially those moments where prayer is very difficult. Those moments where you don't feel God's presence, you don't feel God's love. And so, like, this is especially something that I think is very important for, like, youth ministers, especially because you're taking a group to Cove Crest, I'm taking a group to Cove Crest, and, like, I don't know how many times you've been there before, but one of the things that you frequently see is this idea of, like, a retreat high, you know? You go on this retreat, and you have this amazing experience where you feel so consoled. You have all, all this time of spiritual consolation, and it's like you feel... God's presence everywhere. You know, it's like every moment you feel God's love. And so you, you know, you desire to live out the faith. You desire to go to Mass. You desire to pray. Um, you desire to want to maybe give up some of those things that you used to struggle with. And that maybe persists for a little while, but what Ignatius tells us, what John of the Cross tells us, what Mother Teresa's life shows us is that eventually those moments will fade. And so then you enter into a time of desolation. And so Ignatius actually, in a kind of funny way, never really defines consolation or desolation. He just gives us examples of what happens when we undergo it. And so I'm sure to anybody who's listening to this, um, assuming this isn't, you know, someone who just randomly stumbles on this podcast, you know, like you're trying to live out a life of prayer, you've probably experienced this at some point where you go, maybe you maybe make a commitment when you're in a time of consolation to like say, I'm going to give 15 minutes of prayer a day to God. 
Okay. And maybe you do that for a while and it's like you get to the 15 minutes and you're like, that went by so fast. You know, if you're in a time of consolation, like maybe I'm going to stay for another 15 minutes. Maybe I'll stay for a whole hour. But then maybe you get to that time where desolation arises and all of a sudden it's, you're like, am I almost done? And then you look at the clock and you're like, man, I've been here 15 seconds, you know? Um, and so this time of desolation where you go to pray and you just don't feel anything, you feel um, tepid, you feel uh, slothful, you feel like, you know, like God's not there. And so Ignatius wants to give, I think first off, it's important to recognize that that's normal. So kind of like, mm-hmm. like, I think you maybe said this, uh, but like you feel like God's abandoned you if you don't know that this is normal. If you don't know that this is a normal movement within the spiritual life, it seems like has maybe all the time of consolation actually been fake? Is that something maybe I made up? You hear that sometimes after the retreats. Like maybe that was something that was just kind of in my, in my head, in my imagination, that I felt God's presence when God wasn't really there. Maybe God is absent. And so that's one of the geniuses of Ignatius is that he lets you know that that's normal, you know, to experience this time of desolation. And then he gives you a bunch of rules for how to do it. And so one of the things that you mentioned was, uh, you know, like, why would God do this to you? And that's, he, has an, he dedicates an entire rule to that. I think it's rule nine. I could be wrong on that. Um, but he, tell, he lets you know, like, why God might do this. Um, first one that he says is that maybe it's because we've become slothful and lazy, you know, um, and so I said this, and uh, I just gave a Lenten mission on this. And so I was talking about this, but it's kind of like if you're, if you're not actually putting in the work and you're not praying and you don't feel God's presence, it's, it's not that you're in a time of desolation. You just don't really have a prayer life at that point, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's like you're just not praying. But if you're, if you're trying to pray and you go and you don't feel God's presence, like that could be a time of spiritual desolation. It could be a time of maybe a non-spiritual desolation that's maybe weighing on you, and so that's also what discernment has to do. Um, Maybe you have to discern if this is a spiritual or a non-spiritual desolation. But if you're in a time of prayer and there's no immediate non-spiritual desolation that you could attribute it to, then maybe you're in a time of desolation. And so some of the other reasons that Ignatius gives is maybe in a way this could actually strengthen you. And so that seems counter counterintuitive, right? You know, like, why would desolation help? And desolation itself does not help. Okay, desolation in and of itself cannot bring about growth, but how, our, how we respond to that could potentially bring growth. Mm. And so it's kind of like, um, you know, like married life. You know, I mean, sure, maybe I could attest to this a little bit. I know y'all are probably very recently, y'all were, you know, recently married, so maybe you haven't gotten to this point yet. But, like, you know, as you've been married for, like, 20 or 30 years, you probably have different feelings than you did on your honeymoon. You know, um, and so like, hopefully, even though you may not have those same strong feelings that you had before, you've hopefully still grown in love of that person. And so, one of the things that we realize is love is not attached to feelings, at least if it's you know like true love. Mm-hmm. And so, ultimately, God will sometimes, in a way, take away that feeling of consolation, actually, to draw you closer to Him, because hopefully, at that point, you grow not in love with the feelings, not in love with the consolation, but in love with God Himself. And so that could be one of the ways, and that's kind of the whole premise, I think, behind the dark night of the soul of John of the Cross, is that God actually will use this moment to help plunge you deeper into union with him so that you're not just like relying on feelings or consolation or anything like that. And so that's, that's some of the reasons why God might you know, put you in a time of desolation, or, or I should say permit a time of desolation. God never really puts desolation in our lives, but he permits it to happen. Mm-hmm. And so it's, he permits it, for our own spiritual growth, assuming that we respond well. And so that's what all those rules are to do, is to give you practical advice on how to respond to a time of desolation. Wow. Yeah, and I think like a natural <clears throat> a natural reaction to being in a time of desolation is like thinking that my relationship with God is now stagnant. Like mm-hmm. <clears throat> the flow of graces is now stagnant. Like it's not happening anymore. <clears throat> and like God isn't present in it. Um, and that leads us to be very hopeless, hopeless. Like sure. we, we don't see how, you know, start questioning a lot of things, start getting maybe like angry with God. If there is still belief in God, if there mm-hmm. is still faith. Um, so what are some ways that, you know, people can remain, uh, hopeful and, and strong in their prayer life during a time of desolation? Like it, you know, I guess, first of all, like you talked about at the beginning of the episode is awareness, sure. having awareness that you're yeah. in desolation. Uh, once you've uh, you know, been, been able to identify, okay, I'm in a phase that is not consolation anymore. I'm kind of struggling in my prayer life. What are some ways that people can, can accept that stage of their prayer? Sure. And I think I'm really glad that you brought that back up 
the the big three is what it's sometimes called of the awareness uh, understand and take action is that if you don't aware if you're not aware of it and you don't understand it you can't take action towards it and so I think that's once again one of the great things that Ignatius does is to bring up the fact that desolation is a normal occurrence within the spiritual life and so once you're aware of that and you're aware that maybe these different things of desolation you know, uh, that you're going through a time of desolation, that's when these other rules come into play. And so the first one would be if you've made like a commitment. So let's, let's use the example of a retreat again. So for, because this is not only something that's very practical for you and me, but also coming up as the summer approaches, you know, let's say you're, you're going to have kids that go on Cove Crest and they're going to have these huge mountaintop experiences where they undergo amazing consolation. A lot of them will probably try to make some sort of commitment while in a state of consolation as to how to live out the faith when they return. Okay, that happens all the time. You know, you say, like, I'm going to start going to daily mass. You have the summer, especially for you, because you have, like, the first week of camp, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. So, yeah, so, like, I mean, you have, in a way, I'm sure that's stressful to try to find out, like, to prepare as quickly as possible, but also, like, you have the whole summer to really kind of build on what they do with their experience at Covecrest. But with that, you also have a lot of time for them to fall into desolation. Right. And so the, the first rule, that, the fifth rule that he gives, which is the first rule. So rules three and four, he just kind of outlines what desolation and consolation are. And then rules five through nine, he kind of like prepares you for what to do in a state of desolation. And so the first one, which I think is one of the most important ones, is if you're in a state of desolation and you made commitments within a time of consolation, never make a change. Okay, so like let's say... You know, I'm the, I'm the high school senior who just went to Cove Crest, had this amazing experience, maybe haven't lived out a life of prayer before, but had this amazing experience. And I say I'm going to do those 15 minutes of prayer a day. It's probably really easy for a week or two, maybe a little longer, but then eventually the time of desolation occurs. What do you do in that time? When it becomes difficult to pray, do you change your commitments? Do you change your proposals that you made? It becomes very easy to do that. Okay, especially as maybe like, you know, you have friends who are wanting to do something. Maybe, maybe you say, I'm going to pray first thing when I wake up. Maybe you spend the night out before, out really late, and you don't get much sleep. Like, ultimately, you're gonna, it's going to become very, very easy, especially if you're not in a time of consolation, to give up on those commitments. And so what Ignatius says is, if you're in a time of desolation, never make a change. At least to, like, proposals that you made in a time of consolation. And so the, the person who finds himself in desolation needs to commit to those 15 minutes. As, as difficult as it might be, as, you know, as much you might be in a time of desolation, you have to stick to those 15 minutes. Rule six does say we should change ourselves, though. And so maybe actually increase those commitments. Maybe in a way, if you said you were going to pray for 15 minutes before, pray for 17 minutes before. And kind of going back to what we were talking about before, the person who, in a time of desolation, who doesn't feel God at all, but spends those times in 15 minutes of prayer, is choosing to love God for God's sake because of how great God is and how much God has done for them. Even if they don't feel it, they're no longer doing it for, a, for the consolation or the feelings that they receive, but they're doing it purely out of love for God. And I think to me, that's a much for a higher form of prayer, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, like you might have with your wife, you know, at times whenever you're feeling all these great feelings, you know, it's easy to love them back. But the time when they're really sick and you have to tend to every need of them or something like that, or like, you know, God willing, you have a child and you have to wake up at three in the morning, you know, choosing to love them, that's, that's a much higher form of love. And so the person in the fifth and sixth rule who continues to pray because they've, purely because they've made that commitment and want to honor that commitment and then love God, I think actually is a much higher form of love. And so Ignatius would say, never make a change to your proposals that you made when you were consoled, when you're in desolation, but maybe add more to them. Maybe focus more on penance. Maybe focus more on meditating on God's faithfulness. And so maybe like find a passage of scripture that focuses on how God is faithful to his covenant, to his people. And so for me, one of the ones that I always uh, kind of go to whenever I'm in a time of desolation or a time of struggle, either spiritual or non-spiritual, um, is Psalm 91. And so Psalm 91, it says, uh, and this is actually the responsorial psalm that was sung. I don't know if it's the exact wording of the psalm, um, but be with me, Lord, when I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so I would just repeat that over and over again when I'm in a time of desolation. Um, Just kind of focusing on the fact that God is with me. You know, even though it doesn't feel like it at the moment, God is still with me. And so that would be um, one of the things that I, the main things that I think you do, especially, like I said, after a retreat, like stay faithful to your commitments um, knowing that God will remain faithful to you and that, you know, eventually you'll be taken out of those consolations. And so I'm trying to remember the exact uh, other rules and which ones they are. I might not remember exactly which rule they are, but um, 
you know, some of the other ones are things like, and I'm, I'm just drawing a blank right now. I kind of just said it. Um, but, um, but just, oh yeah, remembering that eventually, like, God will bring you out of this. Mm. You know, like, the time of desolation is not permanent. And so, once again, focusing on that awareness and understanding, recognizing that consolation and desolation is a normal movement within the life of a Christian, especially a Christian that is trying to pray. Okay? Like I said, you're not going to undergo des- spiritual desolation if you don't pray. And so if you're praying, you will undergo desolation, but at the same time, you will undergo consolation. And so trusting in God, r- recognizing God's faithfulness, you know, will help you to remember that you will eventually be consoled. And so remaining faithful and remaining committed. So I mean, that Mother Teresa, when she's in that dark night of the soul for decades, you know, still remembers that God will is faithful and God will one day bring me to a time of consolation. And so, I mean, all the saints go through this. Mm. And like John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila would say that you have to go through this to progress in the spiritual life. And so if you don't want, I mean, obviously nobody wants desolation, but I mean, if you were like that adamant against it, like ultimately you're hoping to stay in a very shallow level of prayer. Um, you know, if you're chasing consolation of consolation, you're not really going to grow in the spiritual life into, you know, kind of this universal call to holiness that we're all called to Christian perfection. Ultimately, desolation has to kind of occur for us to be plunged into the depths of the mystery of prayer. And so that's something that the saints bear great, great witness to, all of them. So, and so um, just some of the other things that Ignatius says, some of these practical rules. Um, one that I really like, which is in a time of consolation, prepare for desolation. Mm. And so that's one of the ones that I really want to kind of focus on, like teaching my you know, kids as we go to Cove Crest. It's like know that desolation will occur and prepare yourself accordingly. Once again, focus, and like oh, it's really kind of all the same rules, I feel like, that apply whenever you're in a time of desolation. Just know that you can apply them when in consolation. You know, like make a commitment, but know eventually it's going to be very difficult to keep that commitment. And when you find that difficulty, keep it and maybe increase it. Um, you know, like focus on God's faithfulness at all times. Recognize, another thing is humble yourself. Like recognize the fact that like this consolation that you're experiencing, while it is a great gift, it is a gift. It's not something that you earned. As, as much as you are, you know, trying to live out the faith, as much as you're trying to, you know, go on a retreat that'll help build up your faith, that consolation is a gift from God. And you can't, by your own earthly powers, earn consolation. It's something from God. And so humble yourself so that when the desolation arises, you know, you recognize like that wasn't a gift. That was, I mean, that was purely a gift from God. God will give it back to me again if I'm faithful, you know, in a way, but it's purely up to God on his time to do that. It's not because I work really hard to do this. I'm going to work really hard to hopefully like stay faithful because ultimately that's what God deserves, but it's not my earning consolation. It's purely a gift from God. And so respond to that with humility, with great humility. So that yeah. great virtue. And that that distinction that you drew in the state of desolation of God doesn't like God doesn't want desolation or God sure. it's it's not the desolation that that is the important part part. It's the response to it. Exactly. You know, and just just realizing that uh just God is an vending machine, right? <laughs> that we go yeah. to prayer and we we receive that immediately. You know, some sometimes the the coin thing is jammed up and that's a good thing for us. You know, yeah. it's it's a good thing and, and to be able to see that God's stripping us from the things that we want, right? Realizing that the journey to sainthood isn't self-glorification, but glorification of of him, right? Mm-hmm. And um and not to get wrapped up in like only what only what we want in the spiritual life. Mm-hmm. It's like I'll pray the daily rosary as long as it feels good, as yeah. long as I'm receiving what I'm praying for. Mm-hmm. But what happens when I don't? And and we say, well, this isn't working. And we kind of fall off the tracks a little bit. And uh, we just lose lose sight of the, the big goal, right, to, to be able to receive these things as a gift, um, as a gift of like kind of like, I, I don't know how I want to say, like as a gift of growth, you sure. know, as, a, as an opportunity of growth. Yeah. As an opportunity to grow in virtue. Um, yeah. And, and I guess it's just so countercultural to everything that we're used to as 21st century Americans. And you, you bring up a good point, you know, in this business mindset. Um, we're used to, and I see the struggle with my students, is that everything that we do in life, assuming we work, we're working towards something, it's to receive some sort of tangible goal or some reward, I mean. So, like, you obviously go to work to get paid, right? You 
sadly in school don't go to school to learn you go to receive a grade and so that's one of the things that my students will constantly ask me it's like why can't we just come here to like learn why can't why do we everything have to be like so grade-based just like well sadly because if the way that we've structured things over time like you know now the way that we have it like if i were to take away grades 90 percent of you wouldn't care you know and so everything that we do is basically about receiving a tangible reward and prayer is not that you know, like you, you don't get a certificate, you know, when you get to heaven, that's like, you prayed well, good job, you know, yeah. um, ultimately, like sometimes you get those good feelings that we're talking about that time of consolation, but sometimes it's are stripped away. And so like, I think because of that, like the average 21st century American kind of like recoils at the idea of prayer, at least when it becomes difficult, because we're so focused on getting something in return. Mm. And so once again, that's the beauty of the spiritual life or the traditions of the saints is that, you know, they bear great witness to this. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, ultimately you have to remain faithful to this because another thing is just like God deserves it. You know, ultimately, like we don't we we're so focused on ourselves, but it's very interesting. I find as I'm kind of going through morality with my students and looking at the writings of Aquinas, um, we talk about religion all the time, but like Aquinas puts religion as a virtue of justice, you know? And so like religion is giving to God what is owed to God. And so even when you don't, like we literally owe everything to God. Not, not just like some things, not whenever God gives us something good. Like in the fact that God created us and created everything good in our lives, like we owe everything to God. And so I think a recognition of that is key. Like God has already given us the ultimate reward, um, even just in our life, but also especially in like the church, the Eucharist, you know, all the sacraments and everything like that. Like God has given us so much. And so we owe it to God to respond to that. Um, but yeah, and so all these different, you know, rules kind of help us to, in a way, respond to that when we're in a time of, you know, struggle. Yeah, and the beautiful thing is that <clears throat> we need to, like, bring our worship and praise to God and offer sacrifices for God, not because he needs it, not because he, like, needs the attention, but sure. because he loves us so much and he knows that we need to have this, like, in his, in his wisdom— he knows that we need to be able to offer sacrifices and we need to be able to uh, have our focus on him, on love itself. And therefore, like everything he did uh, throughout salvation history was guiding us to this point of like offering sacrifices on the altar of our hearts, as well as, uh, you know, worshiping in mass whenever we're, you know, in a time of desolation or maybe we don't even understand the mass, but still showing up. He knows that we need it. Mm-hmm. He knows that uh, he loves us and he wants us there to worship him and to put him first because we need it, not because he needs it. Sure. I mean, God literally needs nothing. He's, you know, goodness in and of himself. And so ultimately, you know, all these things that we have are meant to kind of like in a way respond to the love that God has given us. And so the thing is, as you kind of see in like the beginning of the spiritual life, it is kind of typically more like, and John of the Cross and others will talk about this, it's more of like a servile fear, you know, like we have to do this because, you know, ultimately like I have to go to mass, you know, is the common saying of my students. But ultimately it should get to the point where we're doing out of love. And so this filial love, the love of a child to their father, you know, where everything that we want to do in life is to, you know, give back to God, not out of requirements, not out of receiving a reward, but purely out of love. And that's what happens when you get to the level of a Mother Teresa or a Teresa of Lisieux, who even though they're in this great moments of desolation where for years they never experienced any great feeling from God, they ultimately, you know, still want to give it because they ultimately love God. And so yeah. that's that's what really matters, you know, to them. Yeah, and, and Reed, Reed brought up kind of the the point of this podcast, and I, I want to kind of pose this question to you, which is kind of why we invite guests on to talk about, you know, just what they're up to in their life and mm-hmm. how they're extending the kingdom to, to others. Um, so as, as baptized people, as, as our role of priest within the laity, it, it's our duty to make sacrifices on the altar of our heart, right, sure. in our everyday life. And, and so how would you say in your everyday life you're, you're able to do that? What are some things in your life where you're able to make sacrifice on the altar of, altar of your heart and just continue to grow as a man in, in this vocation of a teacher and, and, mm-hmm. and a mentor? Sure. Um, teaching can definitely involve sacrifices. <laughs> <laughs> so youth ministry, obviously, sure. as you said. I mean, uh, you know, just that sometimes we'll end up, 
obviously being a lot of work that goes involved. And so like one of the struggles for me though actually is because of the fact that like evangelization is very much my job, it becomes difficult to do it outside of that. And so I have to in a way because I think like because it's so ingrained in everything that I do, like I'm doing what's required because it is often a requirement. Mm. Um, and so like I have to reach, I'll go outside of that. You know, it becomes easy when eight to 10 hours of your day is focused on stuff that is dealing with the church that you're required to do to go and do that extra hour, you know, of sacrifice. Because at that point, you know, I just want to kind of like, you know, let me just take it easy, do, you know, play some chess. That's what I've been doing a lot of lately, you know. <laughs> like, let me just go play some chess or like, you know, go watch sports or something like that. Um, but I think that's like one of my big struggles. And so sacrificing that time um, because it seems like, you know, I could be doing a bunch of other things, but let me focus on doing this right now. Um, and so like to still give that time to God um, when it's not required anymore. Because the thing is, like, as a religion teacher, everybody assumes, like, you're living a life of prayer and you don't really have to do anything for it, you know? Like, because, like, ultimately, like, most of my day is revolved around that. But it is very much a struggle. Um, and I'm sure you could probably attest to it as a youth minister or even maybe just doing this podcast, you mm-hmm. know? Like, it, it becomes very difficult when you have a job to do in the faith um, to do something outside of that. And so that's one of my, I think, big struggles right now that I'm trying to learn how to, like, sacrifice better the altar of my heart, you know, um, is giving more time to God whenever I don't need to. I mean, well, I do need to, obviously, but yeah. it's not required. Gotcha. Well, thanks so much for coming on, man. Thanks for joining us. Um, it don't matter where you've been and it don't matter how you seen this door's too wide open and I pray you come back in They're gonna say I'm such a fool cause I go right on Honey, love.